I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Protesters clash with police over immigration arrests in Dalston. Bitter row erupts over last-minute changes to RIBAA election rules. Design competition for a memorial at Brenfell Tower announced. And could a national housing plan be the real solution to the housing crisis? My name is Rachel Coppell, and I work at Open City, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Will Ng. Will is a senior reporter at the Architects Journal. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Kingsland High Street in Dalston was the focus of high-profile police violence last weekend after the Metropolitan Police attempted to arrest a man on alleged immigration offenses. Images of numerous officers appearing to repeatedly punch a man in the head while he was on the ground erupted over social media, and the story was later reported on by The Independent, My London, and Novara Media. The journalist Samir Daraj, who was an eyewitness to the violence, also published a comprehensive look at events in The New Statesman. The Metropolitan Police said it was carrying out a pre-planned operation targeting e-scooter and moped-enabled crime. However, witnesses accused police of leading a heavy-handed immigration raid targeting delivery drivers. The policing operation and subsequent protest has prompted wide-ranging questions about how London's public spaces are shared and regulated. It has also once again cast into doubt the ability of the Met to police the capital with the consent and trust of its communities. The weekend operation targeted Ashwin Street, a quiet side street known for being a popular rest stop for delivery drivers between jobs. In this location, police questioned riders about their licenses, insurance, and, it emerged, immigration status. According to witnesses, officers seized the phone of one driver and subsequently arrested him over alleged immigration offenses. Crowds gathered in response and described, quote, horrendous scenes as police and activists clashed. One video shows officers using batons on protesters, and another shows officers surrounding a man on the floor, striking him multiple times in the head. Several people caught up in the violence came away with serious injuries, including a fractured elbow from one bystander. The Met Police also claimed officers were assaulted at the scene. However, none required hospital treatment. A spokesperson from IWGB, a trade union representing couriers, said in a statement, quote, It is our legal right to protest and to show solidarity with the most marginalized members of society when they are targeted. 
the violent response from the police was shocking and disproportionate. For many, the images shared on social media served as a visual reminder of the aftermath of the police shooting of Mark Duggan, which took place in nearby Tottenham back in 2011 and provoked rioting across the country. This fresh bout of London police violence comes at a time of increased scrutiny of police and armed forces around the world who have been accused of gross violence and unprovoked attacks, including the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis two years ago and the beating of mourners at the funeral of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Alek just two days ago. Will, the videos which have been circulating on social media are incredibly disturbing to see. It seems important to remember this started, at least according to police, as an operation to tackle e-scooters, which are pretty commonplace despite not being fully legally regulated yet. What do the events of Saturday say about public space, how it's shared, regulated, and who is allowed to occupy it in London? I don't think they tell us anything particularly new in a way. It's only been a matter of weeks or maybe months since uh, the police force in Hackney, so the Hackney branch of the Met, you know, it emerged, strip searched a black schoolgirl after wrongly accusing her of having cannabis. So this is an institution, I mean, the Met all over London, but also in Hackney particularly, that has really sort of serious problems with uh, sexism and kind of racialized policing. So I, I suppose, to me, this kind of reiterates that non-white people are policed differently in, in public spaces. Um, to pivot slightly, e-scooters are good news for our cities. More people on e-scooters means less people driving around. That means less carbon emissions. It also frees up spaces on roads and in parking spaces. And it has the potential to be much safer for pedestrians. So they're, they're a good thing. I cycle around London a lot and I can't help noticing, you know, this is anecdotal, but in East London and Dalston, the majority of e-scooter users I see whizzing around are not white, while actually probably most cyclists I see are white. So interestingly, I think scooters have probably, you know, brought more people and possibly sort of more communities um, and more sort of diversity into travelling around cities at that kind of speed you know away from cars into scooters and cycling probably some people do drive scooters dangerously just as some people cycle dangerously but i think we really need to invest in cycle lanes and better road infrastructure and if necessary sort of proper regulations as as you kind of alluded to rather than just cracking down on scooter users in the first place and let me suggest rachel that if the problem is a shortage of money Why don't we start with the public money being spent on tens of police officers beating up protesters and harassing scooter owners or delivery drivers? Also, I don't even know how you start off policing scooters and then get on to arresting people for immigration breaches. But um, to me, it sounds like the police is targeting specific communities again. Dalston is experiencing rapid gentrification, even for London. House prices are going up, local businesses are getting replaced with trendy bars and coffee shops, and there is a surge of cash-rich and time-poor people moving into the area, fueling a rapid expansion in demand for delivery drivers. However, as the area becomes more gentrified, these service workers are deemed to be undesirable, and the police crackdowns like this one appear to be targeting these already marginalized members of the community. 
What does it say about the role policing sometimes plays in supporting gentrification and maintenance or increasing of property values in areas of London undergoing rapid transformation? Yeah, it's really grim that police target delivery drivers. The biggest winners from delivery drivers are the massive tech companies that are trying to monopolize a new type of kind of app-based service. It's potentially the restaurants that sell more food. It's definitely the customers that pay very little to have their food delivered. Um, And in the middle of this somewhere are the delivery drivers who drive around the city for low wages, no pension or sick pay. Sometimes they're in the cold and the rain. They have no toilets to use, no proper places to wait. Um, So if, if delivery drivers are a problem, then their employers should be regulated or the people that benefit from them should help fund a solution. In terms of kind of more broadly on policing and gentrification, I don't have any particular insight. But of course, living in London, I know that there are certain types of antisocial behaviour which are tolerated or at least kind of not policed in some areas, maybe lower income areas, that you probably couldn't get away with in posher areas. So things like graffiti and, you know, writing on walls, fly tipping. I mean, certainly nothing's done about bike theft around me, but maybe it wouldn't be in Notting Hill either. A heated furor has erupted over the elections for the next president of the Royal Institute of British Architects. The organization, which represents architects across the country and is headquartered in London's Portland Place. Held every two years, the election this summer will see members of the Institute select a new leader, but a surprise last-minute alteration to the rulebook means that any recently joined new members will be barred from voting. It is a move that has prompted fury from some commentators and has been covered across the built environment media, including in the AJ by this week's guest, Will Ng. Voting to decide the next RIBA president, as well as for the next president of the Royal Society of Architects in Wales and 13 council seats, will open on the 28th of June, with results set to be announced on the 2nd of August. Historically, the electorate has comprised all current members of the RIBA, save for honorary fellows. However, new amendments mean that only architects and students who joined before the 23rd of April will be able to vote in this year's forthcoming elections. While the rules say that the, quote, electorate shall comprise all the current members of RIBA, there is an additional clause in the 2022 rules which states, quote, reference to members means individual members of the RIBA who have been admitted to the relevant category of membership of the RIBA at least 10 days before the publication of the notice of election. The rule change comes after campaign group Future Architects Front, FAF, and other early career architects, students, and activists selected MACE employee Muya Oki to run as candidate. In March, the group announced its intentions to put forward a candidate who could usher in, quote, a new era of change and become a drama-free RIBA president who could enact positive, ethical, and progressive change. In an open letter signed by 60 backers, the group sought to galvanize students and younger architects to take part in the next RIBA presidential election and help elect a candidate who could work harder on issues like employment rights and climate change. The FAF, which campaigns for workers' rights in architecture, described the change to election rules as, quote, outrageous lack of transparency and exclusionary tactics. A spokesperson went on to say, quote, 
Our main concern is that this is unprecedented. It appears to be a totally new policy introduced during the election that most threatens the status quo of the RIBA. New members who are enthusiastic to create a more progressive future for the Institute have been silenced, and this will only further entrench the irrelevance of the RIBA and its role as a regressive gatekeeper of the profession. So, Will, what's this story all about? This seems like quite a small change of wording around the rules, so why is it such a big deal and prompting so much controversy? What is potentially at stake here if newly signed up members are denied a vote? So I think the first problem with the rule change is that the RIBA did not tell anyone. Um, so the new election rules have actually apparently been kicking around the Institute for some time, uh, but they were approved by the RIBA Council at the end of April, and then only kind of formally published online at the beginning of May with the notice of the election. Um, and even then, the rules were in a really long document, so the kind of changes to the electorate were not spelt out. This meant that there were people who joined the RIBA in late April, two months before the election actually starts, who subsequently found out that they're excluded from voting. You know, the kind of worst things they found out from Twitter. So my article quoted two such people. One was a student, one was an architect in practice. And I think, obviously, it is understandable why they are aggrieved. The, the second problem with the rule change, and this is sort of why it's really kicked off, um, is because it's been interpreted as a fractional move. So FAF, the Future Architects Front, argues that students and kind of ordinary workers would have been um, kind of empowered to join the RIBA, or maybe already have been empowered to join the RIBA, but now are being kind of disenfranchised. Um, and, and they would have been empowered to vote for Miwa Oki. So... Um, FAF see the rule change as a sort of insider attempt to disenfranchise new members. On the other hand, other RIBA members say, well, the election rules were scrutinised. You know, the RIBA council passed them unanimously. And if people are really kind of serious about transforming the RIBA, then they would not be signing up, you know, at the last minute, two months before the election, just so they can vote. Um, do we know why the rules have been changed? So no, and this is what really fueled the flames, um, because the RIBA took three days to respond to my press inquiry, and when they finally did, they did not say why the rules has changed. All they kind of said is that, um, you know, the rules are in line with what other institutes, uh, similar kind of membership bodies would have, which is no doubt true, but it kind of doesn't dispel the accusation that there were shady motives behind the change, given there were to my knowledge, no problems with all members being able to vote in the last election. That, that being said, though, the RIBA can be quite dysfunctional. So it would not surprise me if there is some kind of innocent reason for the rule change, which they've just been unable to kind of identify or communicate. So this isn't the first time the RIBA has courted controversy, and the FAF and young architects in particular have been calling for change within the organization for years, something we've covered on this show several times. Why is the RIBA so frequently the focus of negative headlines? Is it being unfairly picked on or perhaps receiving fair criticism? And what sort of measures could it take to improve the situation? It does sometimes feel like it's only good for awards and kind of controversy, the RIBA. To recap a little bit, because you'll like this if you don't know it, the scandals range from complete ignorance, I would say, 
such as when they arranged a cooking class for International Women's Day, or when the diversity officer said that all lives matter on LinkedIn. And then you kind of get the more serious controversy, which is making tens of people redundant, merging their regional offices, all while kind of investing um, big money in their London headquarters. So there are lots of different parts. I would say that the RBA is not being picked on unfairly, um, at least in terms of news coverage. You know, it is not a small organisation run by five people on a shoestring. Uh, as of 2020, I looked it up, it had more than 300 staff, a net worth of £350 million. Uh, it has a royal charter, which it's had since 1837, has around one million artefacts. Uh, its building at 66 Portland Place is actually really nice, and it's the only kind of building that belongs to the architectural profession. And, and they're the kind of main architecture voice that governments listens to. So it's a very large, actually, and powerful organisation. Um, and it has quite an important remit of supporting architects, particularly its 30,000 members, and kind of advancing architecture in the UK. So it does, it deserves proper scrutiny. You know, this is, this is the kind of voice for architects. In terms of going on to why it creates so much controversy, I think firstly it has to cater to the needs of quite a sort of large and diverse group of people in architects. Um, you know, they're geographically dispersed everywhere. A lot of practices are just one or two man bands, but then you get much bigger practices. Uh, also, architects are just not very well paid or powerful within the construction industry. Um, a, lot of, a lot of architects blame the RIBA for low fees, for instance. I don't really know if that is fair enough or not. Um, but if architects were paid like bankers, then less people would be complaining, right? So I guess thirdly, the poor reputation maybe kind of perpetuates. And actually a lot of the most talented people in our industry don't give their time to the ROBA for free. Five years on from the Grenfell fire and with the official inquiry into the tragedy still yet to conclude, New plans have been announced for a memorial selected through an architecture competition to remember the 72 people who lost their lives. The proposal to transform the prominent site of the Burnout Tower next to London's Westway feature in a report drawn up by the Grenfell Tower Memorial Commission summarizing the views of survivors, neighbors, and bereaved family members. This story has been covered by the BBC and in the AJ, again by Will Ng. The report found that 64% of survivors and bereaved wanted the memorial to include a garden, while 33% wanted it to include an artwork or a monument, and 10% wanted it to incorporate a building such as a museum or sheltered space. The report acknowledged that a memorial could include aspects of two or three of these and noted that the idea of a building was particularly supported among survivors as well as bereaved family members. Popular ideas for the memorial also include enshrining the names of the 72 deceased, creating a place for prayer, integrating a water feature into the design and making an area for children and young people to play. The report rules out building new housing on the site and also suggests that a Grenfell exhibition at the Museum of London or elsewhere may be a better way of educating the public about the tragedy, highlighting the danger of creating a tourist destination if a museum was put on the site. The Commission vowed to publish another report by March 2023 detailing its design brief and approach to a competition. 
A design competition would then be held with a design team appointed by April 2024. This report follows an article published by the Sunday Times back in September, which suggested the tower would have to be urgently demolished, leading to allegations that the Memorial Commission had been involved in covering up information on behalf of the government. Leveling up Secretary Michael Gove later apologized and said no decision would be taken about the future of Grenfell Tower without bereaved residents and survivors being consulted. Will, what is the significance of this memorial announcement for those affected by Grenfell and for social housing communities around London? Is this a milestone moment following the tragedy, especially as the inquiry is still going on nearly five years after the fire? Yeah, I think it's a small milestone, but obviously there is a long way to go. Um, I imagine it is, though, a small kind of solace to survivors and particularly bereaved family members uh, as we're approaching the kind of five year mark to know that a memorial site is forthcoming. Um, I mean, I suppose it's worth pointing out that the site is already effectively a memorial. There are quite sort of heart-moving wreaths, paintings, shrines and flowers sort of laid over the hoardings. So in a sense, there is kind of already a memorial, but it's, it's good to see it coming along. One of the most striking and kind of moving things in the report, actually, Um, was about the possible plans for laying to rest um, unidentified remains. So they still need to kind of investigate technically and kind of legally and so on whether it would be feasible. The idea is that some of the unidentified remains from the tower could be sort of put to rest in a special part of the memorial, uh, possibly even a part that is only accessible to bereaved family members. Um, So I thought that was a nice idea but also just a really powerful reminder that some grieving families never even had a you know a body to mourn. Last week we reported on the Queen's speech at the state opening of parliament which was delivered by the Prince of Wales and outlined a range of leveling up and planning reforms including new so-called street votes. If this plan goes ahead, residents will be able to vote on the design of developments in their areas, which, according to Housing Secretary Michael Gove, will weed out modernist architecture in favor of traditional buildings, which, quote, the rest of us actually like. This week, Rowan Moore, the architecture critic, published his response in The Observer. Moore points out that such a vague policy is more likely to fuel a boom in loft conversions and extensions for those in the least need of space than it is to address the very real housing crisis the country is currently experiencing. He goes on to speculate that the strong emphasis the conservatives have placed on street votes indicates their lack of commitment to building the 300,000 homes promised in their 2019 manifesto, something that the housing secretary Michael Gove recently heavily hinted at when he said the government is not bound by this target. A real solution to the housing crisis, Moore proposes, is a national housing plan, such as the one put in place in post-war Britain, which saw the creation of 32 towns over 20 years, creating homes where 2.8 million people now live. Such a radical transformation of the country was a result of significant public intervention, including the use of compulsory purchase orders, which allowed the government to acquire land to construct infrastructure and homes of the type and number that people needed. So, Will... Could you explain what a national housing plan is? What could a plan like this look like? And how does it differ from the housing policy and planning system we're currently operating under? A national housing plan would be to actually have a plan to sort out the national housing crisis. 
uh, what we currently have is is not a plan. We don't have a plan. Uh, so let me elaborate a little bit. At the moment, private sector developers build almost all the homes. In 2021, private developers built 142,000 homes. Councils built 2,250 homes. And central government built zero homes. Um, so to be fair to central government, you know, it would say that it has various funds to help bring sites into the market. Uh, it supports developments with, you know, funding for specific objectives. Um, and there's also Homes England, which is this kind of government body which uh, helps with infrastructure work for house builders and kind of sells them nicely packaged up public sites to build on. But private developers are not going to solve the housing crisis for the very simple reason, why would they? Uh, if supply becomes too high, uh, then demand will decrease, as will kind of house prices, as will their profit margins, which are, by the way, ludicrously high. We're talking hundreds of millions for big house builders, sometimes over a billion a year. But anyway, that's obviously what their shareholders want. Um, there's sort of a related problem that most houses are built by the same eight or so house builders, and it's not a very competitive market. None of their products are particularly good from a design or kind of building standard point of view. This is particularly true in the shires where they sort of build the same home over and over and over and over and over again in a field. Uh, they also build um, very small amounts of affordable housing, only what they're kind of forced to do by councils as a proportion of their overall. So the crisis in affordable housing is particularly severe with no meaningful prospect, I would say, of help from the private sector. So what Rowan is suggesting is that the government should actually use its muscle and if not, you know, build homes as we did in the post-war era, at least force homes to be built um, to sustainable standards in the right locations with proper planning, proper investment. Um, his point actually is also that we could do this quite cheaply. At the moment, the lucky landowners who discover that they can build homes on, on their field um, See, see the price of that field rocket up, like, astronomically. And he's saying, well, if the state bought fields where it built houses, then it could kind of capture the enormous rising land values which, which building houses on it creates. With so much money tied up in existing housing assets and so much hostility to new homes, especially in pretty rural areas and the Greenbelt, would an endeavor like this be potentially too controversial for our political institutions to pull off? Yeah, Rowan puts this well, actually. So to quote him, he says, it is fantasy to think that the competing interests of people who already own homes and those desperate for somewhere to live can always be reconciled without hard decisions. Of course, that is right. And so far, the Conservative Party has sided with people with homes. Um, you know, it knows that the pensioners that vote for it have a lot of their wealth tied up in house prices. You know, they've, they've seen their homes increase by an outrageous amount in 10 years, let alone 20 years or 30 years. But that being said, I would sort of invert the question and say, maybe at some point it will be too controversial for our political institutions not to solve the housing 
crisis. You know, there is a generation of people struggling to, to house themselves. Um, there is increasingly a concentration of wealth within landlords and people that already have wealth. And I think London in particular is in trouble. Like, I am struggling to afford to live in Haringey and pay my bills. Um, you know, and I work for more than the minimum wage. So I think eventually there will have to be a reckoning. So Rowan Moore is the Observer Architect Critic, a role you would think would more typically involve covering shiny new developments and reviews of architecture festivals and biennales. What does it mean when leading journalists are writing about policy and putting forward quite radical ideas about reforming the planning system while politicians seem to be shying away from the challenge? Yeah, I'll push back a bit and say I suppose a critic's role is more than just covering shiny developments, partially because developments aren't so shiny anymore, Rachel. Uh, You know, it's more brick slips, concrete panels, timber if you're lucky, uh, than kind of flashy multicoloured cladding and and glazing. Um, But a a serious answer to your question would be that, in a way, the solution is obvious. You know, Rowan's piece is very good so I'm not saying it's trite Um, it's very well considered and worth a read but the government needs to seriously invest in sorting out this problem Um, most architects probably know that and even journalists can cotton on Accelerate debates the grass isn't always greener is landscape design a posh indulgence or a critical struggle for social justice This debate will examine the role of landscape and land ownership, bringing together essential voices in the conversation to discuss the power of landscape architecture in relation to the burning social issue of land justice in London. Each speaker will both defend and critique the world of landscape design, celebrating its strengths and challenging its failures. For any designer entering education or practice in the built environment, this is a tension that needs to be understood. Will, did you go to the last one? No, sadly, Rachel, I didn't go to the last one. But maybe I'll go to this one. When when is it? It is Thursday, May 26th, 7 p.m. Doors are at 6.30. I did go to the last one, and I can tell you it is a rollicking good time. It's feisty and fun. All right, I haven't got my diary on me, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm free, so maybe I'll head down. It's yeah. at Rich Mix, isn't it? So there's a bar? Yes. There's a bar in the venue, so you don't even have to leave. You can be listening to the debate and you can go, oh, I really want another packet of crisps. And you can just saunter up to the bar and it's not weird. It's just, it's a, it's a really hip venue. So you can do fun stuff like go to the bar and get a snack in the middle of the event. All right, Rachel, I'll catch you there. Yep, Will, I will catch you there and I will catch our whole audience. But please buy tickets ahead of time. Don't get caught out. Will, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can we catch up on your writing? Well, Rachel, all in one place, thearchitectsjournal.co.uk. Occasionally when I write really good stories, I tweet them out as well. So you can follow me on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? It's at willing9. All right, everyone, remember that. At willing9. Yeah, obviously my name is a word, so I had to add... I had to add a number because it was already taken. Oh. So I went for the number nine. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. 
If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.